Read and discuss 3,000 years of the world's most groundbreaking books of philosophy, literature, mathematics, and more at St. John's College. In person or online, in Santa Fe or Annapolis. More at sjc.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. At some point, the world forces most people to leave behind their childhood universe of imaginary friends, fairy tale places, and unlimited ambitions in order to embody a more singularly driven existence. The late Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, however, never gave up that mode of existence. Throughout his seemingly lonely and unadventurous life, Pessoa adopted numerous heteronyms fully fleshed out personas with distinct points of view and with pasts that rarely bore any similarity to his own, and wrote some truly incredible poems in their names and with their voices. Benjamin Kunkel, a novelist and co-founder of N Plus One, reviewed Richard Zena's biography of Pessoa for the November 2021 issue. Kunkel joined me to discuss the tension between Pessoa's life barely lived and his voluminous, posthumous legacy. So I thought perhaps we could start off with a poetry reading of, you know, a work by Fernando Pessoa or one of his heteronyms. And it would be great to hear you talk about, you know, if it was written under a heteronym, talk about a little about who that person was and why you chose this uh, poem. Great. Um, I'd be very happy to do that, Violet. And thank you for inviting me onto this podcast and inviting me in particular to read a poem. I mean, if we if I had my druthers, we might just sit here and read Pessoa poems without my talking about them too much, but perhaps that's not what podcasts do. Yeah, I think the poem to start with is actually one of the poems that uh, Pessoa wrote under his own name. But it's perhaps first worth saying that he was all kinds of poets besides Fernando Pessoa, you know, and this is why we talk about him in terms of his heteronyms. He wrote some poems under his own, own name and published them during his lifetime, his fairly abbreviated lifetime where he dies, I think, at 48. But he's most distinguished for having uh, written and uh, published a number of things under what he called heteronyms. And the reason he wanted to call them heteronyms rather than pseudonyms was because he felt that he was writing as different people. He wasn't disguising himself as if I were to write as myself, but use a different name for whatever purposes of concealment were convenient to me, but instead to adopt a different self and write as that person. And the heteronyms, especially the main ones, there are three or four of these, are, are, are quite distinct poets and personalities, and he outfitted them with different biographies that are also quite distinct. But here's a poem he wrote um, under his own name called Autopsychography. And I think it's something close to sort of an, you know, an, an ars poetica statement of artistic intent by the poet. So he, here we go. This is from, um, it's dated the 1st of April, 1931. And I'm actually not looking it up right now, but I think that uh, though it's sort of written under his own name, that probably just means it was found in a trunk, not signed by a heteronym and hence being dated. He, he published really very little under his own name, during his life. And the only poetry collection he put out was under his own name. And it was a kind of, um, it was a kind of a nationalistic collection, um, not in a, you know, fascist way, or even a particularly political way, but that, you know, kind of harkened back to the uh, age of 
heroic Portuguese exploration. Of course, so was Portuguese, spent most of his life in Lisbon and, you know, celebrated um, this disappeared king, Sebastian, who might one day return as a kind of Portuguese messiah and so forth. You know, so it's quite unlike the, the work that we most value him for these days. So this one, I think, though it's um, you know kind of a statement of intent, also was a statement of intent. He probably just slipped into a trunk um, and that was discovered after his death, along with most of his work. So autopsychography. The poet is a faker who's so good at his act, he even fakes the pain of pain he feels in fact. And those who read this words will feel in what he wrote, neither of the pains he has, but just the one they don't. And so around its track, this thing called the heart winds, a little clockwork train to entertain our minds. You know, you see in this poem that there are these levels of kind of fakeness, which somehow get at a real feeling that remains sort of fake. And one of the constitutive paradoxes of Pessoa's work is that he's always sort of maintaining that we're kind of most alive when we're not really alive. We're most real when we're really faking it that, you know, faking it is the only way to make it, perhaps. And, you know, I, I even in this very short poem, I don't know if I can disentangle um, or sort out easily the levels of sort of f- falseness that is also real. But this sort of falseness that is real, you know, the mask that's kind of truer than your face is uh, really at the heart of his idea of how to write poetry. Yeah, I mean, and I think perhaps if we could expand on his biography, I think you've done a great job of sort of explaining what, you know, sort of a brief sketch of what the heteronyms are. You know, he was someone who was born in Portugal, then was, you know, moved to South Africa and got an English education, perhaps more English than the English would get at home. And so he was he was this figure who was kind of experiencing globalization very early in a way that most people now experience it where there are different different languages being spoken different sounds different different races around and you know that wasn't that wasn't true of perhaps uh, a lot of people in Europe at that time so his mixing of personalities it was sort of like the act of creating and making sense of these different spheres of his life, these different sounds, these different people. But of course, as you say, sort of staying safe and not actually do not actually doing the things that he not actually living the lives that he had created in any way. Yes. I mean, as we'll talk about maybe a, in a bit later on, he was sort of a patron or ought to be a patron saint of slackers. I mean, he's always coming up with these grandiose plans and he really never does nearly anything. But yes, yeah, so he's born in 1888 in Lisbon to a kind of uh, you know bourgeois family. His father was a theater and opera critic and um, a kind of diffident, tubercular guy, as far as we can tell, who dies, I believe, when uh, Pessoa is just five years old. And then his younger brother follows the father into the grave not long after that. And so, of course, early on, he's deprived of some of the people he's closest to. He remained very close to his mother. And then not long after that, his mother meets on a streetcar called an Americano, a dashing Portuguese uh, naval captain whom she quickly um, becomes engaged to marry. And, you know, he's not long after that stationed in Durban, South Africa. And so actually, Pessoa's first poem that we that we know of is 
entitled, you know, in, in translation to my dear mother. And he's saying to his mother, writing her a poem saying, you know, basically, please don't leave me behind here in Lisbon. I really love you even more than I love Portugal. So please take me away with you to South Africa. And so he moves off to South Africa. And the circumstances of this move are pretty interesting because, you know, given the mores of the time, well, you know, Captain Rosas is already stationed in South Africa. And it's indecent for her not yet engaged to him or married to him. I guess she is engaged, but not yet married to travel alone to go meet this guy. So she has to be married to go meet her spouse. But the trouble, he's not, he's, he's not around. So how can she marry him? Well, she's married by proxy to his brother. So his brother stands in <laughs> and says, I'm standing in for my brother. I'm not actually marrying this woman. My brother is, but he's not here. And so it's, it's this circumstance that allows her to sail with her surviving son, Fernando Pessoa, down to Durban. And uh, there she has a number of kids with the, the stepfather of Pessoa, I think four or five. And, um, you know, down there, it's, it's pretty clear that living in South Africa from the age of, I forget what, you know, seven or eight to 17, 18, he's living a pretty lonely life because he's not one of the children from the new family. He's obviously not his stepfather's son. And the stepfather seems to have been a good, decent guy, but of course had a lot going on with the other kids and with his naval career and was just a different type of person. You know, not a tubercular theater critic like the father, but a kind of robust uh, athletic uh, sea captain. And then as you allude to, he's in this kind of socially and racially Baroque and of course, terrible, indeed evil Yes. <laughs> Circumstance where, you know, there's there are black Zulu speaking um, people. Of course, he doesn't belong to that community who've been dispossessed. There is the largely Protestant. Uh, of course, his ba- background is Catholic. Though his father was not a believer, but he comes from a Catholic country, largely Protestant white world of English speakers. And then, you know, uh, Afrikaans speaking Boers, also Protestant in their orientation or I mean, rather, um, you know, confessional background. And then actually quite a few um, South Asians. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating about Pessoa's life in Durban is that he he overlaps with Gandhi, who's just a, a you know a kind of young activist agitating for full civil rights for uh, the South Asian community, saying you know we deserve um, much like the civil rights struggle in the United States, you know we deserve to be able to ride on the trains with the white people and you know be out after curfew, um, the curfew for coloreds, as they were called officially, and, um, you know, uh, stay at hotels and so forth. And later on, uh, Pessoa writes this kind of fascinating uh, essay that was unpublished, like nearly everything he wrote unpublished during his lifetime, in which he says, Gandhi's the greatest man actually of the 20th century. And, you know, one can imagine making that case on various grounds, but he does so on peculiar, very sort of Pessoan grounds that like, Gandhi doesn't really belong to the world. He's the best person in the world because he belongs least to it. And I suppose this refers to his kind of asceticism. And in a weird way, Pessoa was a, a, an ascetic guy, though rather heavy drinking one and a, and a, a real smoker too, but uh, certainly ascetic in a kind of sexual sense. So uh, yes, then he moves back to Portugal. He comes home um, when he is uh, 17, I think. And uh, it's there that his real you know, literary production for public purposes uh, begins. But perhaps you want to ask me some questions before I sort of rattle off his whole biography. Well, no, I think that's a great place to start. And I think and I appreciate the the depth to which uh, you sort of set up his life, because, again, his relationship with his mother is particularly interesting because she was also a poet. 
And so they would write poetry back and forth to each other. Like instead of like a letter, they would correspond via poetry, which is, I don't know, very beautiful, very beautiful thing to think about. And of course, like you said, his father also was a music critic. So they were both you know, he came from a family of writers and he was translated into this new family of sea captain. You know, as you say, this sort of, you know, you've got an indoor kid with the most outdoor dad imaginable. So, you know, what does what does Richard Zenas new biography add to our understanding of Pessoa? Because, again, you know, these are sort of the basic facts of his life. But in Zenas telling, do you gain sort of a better sense of the actual process of creating his heteronyms or as, as a very quiet interior uh, semi-aesthetic person making his way through this, you know, very strange world of South Africa and then back to Portugal. Yeah. I mean, one of the wonderful things about Zenith's book that I didn't really, wasn't able to dwell on in my own uh, piece is that at moments he's quite insightful, I think, uh, Zenith. And he suggests something that I think is kind of fascinating about Pessoa, which is that in a way we're the strange ones in the sense that it's very ordinary for, for kids to be like, I have this whole universe of imaginary friends and I've established relations among them. And I spent a lot of time kind of maneuvering the imaginary people in my head or, you know, who I, you know, embodied in dolls or trucks or whatever toys it's it's quite ordinary for a, a kid to be like that. And what's peculiar about Pessoa in some ways is that he just kept doing this his whole life, that at no point was he like, okay, now it is time to put away childish things. And my little universe of imaginary friends has to, has to come to an end. He was writing letters to himself from like the Chevalier de Pas, this medieval French knight, I, as, as far as I recall, entirely made up to himself when he was five or six years old. And, uh, you know, down in South Africa, speaking of kind of the outdoorsy versus the indoorsy kid, you know, his response to sort of the outdoorsiness of, of the world and the athletic nature of, you know, young men and so forth is to um, uh, stage imaginary soccer matches in his head and say, this is, this is the kickoff time for this soccer match. And this is when these two teams are meeting. And he, these are these managers. And as far as he knows, he's just writing this down on scraps of paper to himself rather than, you know, trying to join the, the soccer team. So this world of really elaborate, elaborate relationships of totally imaginary people is something that he kind of cultivates as a child, which I don't think is very unusual. But what is super unusual is that he just maintains and develops this throughout his whole life. And, you know, the decision to live outwardly unadventurous and the tension around this choice seemed to be one of his or his heteronym's major subjects. So, you know, after describing his death by alcoholism, you write, what are we to make of Pessoa's meager earthly career and prolific afterlife? It's easy to celebrate the vast triumph of the work and pity the small sadness of the life until you realize that the vastness of the work was premised on the smallness of the life and vice versa. So could you talk more about how those things are connected, you know, given that writing is an outwardly boring, almost clerical activity, solitary. Is there any way around this tension between the smallness of the activity and the apparent expansiveness of, quote, real life? What is unique about the way Passau conceptualized that tension? I think he, he, this, one of the wonderful things about him is that he takes this tension, which I think exists in all of our lives, and just really pushes it to the extreme which is to say, I'm going to have as rich an inward life as possible, and I will just barely 
you know, I will hardly cultivate any close friendships. He seems to have sort of one close friend in his life. Does not seem ever to have had sex. He seems to have kissed a woman once, though he seems probably to have been more attracted to men than to women. But there's no evidence of him having any kind of sexual contact with uh, a man or even with a woman beyond the, the sort of kissing of this woman whose name wonderfully was Ophelia because, you know, he yes. was sort of <laughs> indecisive Hamlet. I think... It's even more, the, you know, though you're, you're quoting me there, it's even more sort of, it's the sort of singularity of real life rather than any other aspect of it that he can't really abide. And his insistence on multiplicity kind of has its as its condition, not doing very much in the real world. Because of course, if you say to yourself, oh, I'm a naval captain, you know, because one of his heteronyms is like his stepfather, a seaman, a sailor. If you say to yourself, well, I'm a shepherd, I am a seaman. I'm, I actually live in Brazil, one, as one of his heteronyms did, who never set, you know, he never set foot in Brazil, never crossed the Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I, I love men and I'm involved with men. I love women and I'm involved with women. Well, the trouble is that actually in the world, one ends up in virtually all cases, you know, having to choose among these things or not even being able to choose. But, you know, typically the, the you know, the shepherd is not a, also a race car driver and an astronaut and whatever else you might be in the world. And again, this is kind of like uh, children, right? Where you're like, perhaps when I grow up, I'll be a firefighter or maybe I'll be a movie star or a poet or whatever. So it really seems that, you know, the world forces us when we uh, go out into it to be one person or another. We can only do one thing at a time and, you know, be one place at a time and uh, be with one other. Well, we can be with lots of other people, but we can only be with one group of people at a, at a time. And he's really quite reluctant to accept the kind of singularity of kind of embodied existence. And so prefers this kind of disembodied existence where you can sort of shuffle these possibilities amongst themselves without having to choose among them. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, what you're describing is actually, it makes him almost contemporary because there are so many people who live primarily online. You know, they create personas. They can be multiple things to multiple people. Also, Pessoa was really into astrology. So yes. <laughs> he seems like well-suited <laughs> for right now uh, in, in a very strange way. But, you know, Pessoa has been very influential across Latin America. Mm -hmm. Even though he was shaped by the English language and writers like Walt Whitman and William Shakespeare, did he draw inspiration from, you know, Portuguese authors, particularly, you know, speaking of Brazil, like Oswald de Andrade, who was the author of the Anthropophagic Manifesto. They they overlapped a little bit. Mm -hmm. Pessoa was alive, even though he had lived a very short life. He was alive during this very uh, interesting explosion in Brazil with writing and avant-garde technique? Uh, I think the the short answer is seems to be from Zenith's rather exhaustive biography, not, not too much. Um, he certainly, Portuguese language writers who were his friends and with whom he was involved with launching these little magazines that typically said, we, you know, we're going to change and take over the world, but in fact, we will disappear after our first issue. In the, in the, classic. Yeah, absolutely classic. I feel like, you know, his contemporaries were the Portuguese writers who really interest him, uh, particularly this guy, uh, uh, Mario de Sá Carneiro. Um, and I don't speak Portuguese, so everybody, please forgive my pronunciation of these things. But I feel that he did really draw on English language models more than Portuguese. And in fact, as you'd kind of alluded to earlier, but we didn't 
get a chance to explain. He first really tried to be an English language writer, and he self-published some chapbooks of poems in English. And they were reviewed in the Times Literary Supplement in in the UK, and uh, pretty respectfully, although by critics saying things like, you know, this guy writes extremely well for a Portuguese author, writing in that case under his own name. And it's weird that he's sort of he was like, I am Fernando Pessoa, the English language poet. Whereas when he writes in Portuguese, he's like, I'm all these other guys who write in Portuguese. He, you know, he's re- reviewed respectfully, but they say, you know, this does sound a little stilted and weird and awkward uh, in the way that, you know, writing in a foreign language, however well you know it, you know, the way that you often do. You can really, he, he seems to have felt that English was funny in a certain way, that like it was a language in which to joke. And like much of his poetry has the quality of like a truly heartbreaking joke. Uh, where, you know, you kind of laugh and then notice that you're crying or something. I mean, uh, but, you, you know, at other times you really hear Whitman and him, and perhaps like I should read uh, the beginnings of like this truly magnificent poem. It's called Time's Passage. I mean, if if somebody were to, you know, demand that I choose, you know, my top three poems of the 20th century, I feel that this would have to be one of them. But if you don't mind, I'll just read the first no, of 20 some pages. So Time's Passage. And, you know, as I say, you can really hear Whitman in this. To feel everything in every way, to live everything from all sides, to be the same thing in all ways possible at the same time, to realize in oneself all humanity at all moments in one scattered, extravagant, complete, and aloof moment. I always want to be the thing I feel kinship with. I always become sooner or later the thing I feel kinship with, be it a stone or a yearning, a flower or an abstract idea, a multitude or a way of understanding God. And I feel kinship with all things. I live all in all. I feel kinship with superior men because they are superior. And I feel kinship with inferior men because they are superior too, since to be inferior is different from being superior. And so it is a superiority at certain moments in our seeing. With some, I feel kinship because of their character qualities And with others, I feel kinship because they lack those qualities. And with still others, I feel kinship because I feel kinship with them. And there are absolutely organic moments when them is all men. Yes, since I'm an absolute king in my feeling of kinship, it need only exist to have a raison d'etre. Tight against my heaving breast in a heartfelt embrace, I hold in the same heartfelt embrace. The man who gives his shirt to an indigent he doesn't know. The soldier who dies for his country without knowing what a country is. And... And the matricide, the fratricide, the incestuous, the child molester, the highwayman, the freebooter, the pickpocket, the one who lies in wait in dark alleys, all are my preferred lover for at least a moment in life. Um, and, you know, we see there, he's like, I'm everybody's lover and I will die a virgin, you know? And like, <laughs> you know, these things are kind of one in the same because you can't be everybody's lover really actually in the world. And so this is, this is really uh, typical of him. That was an incredible poem, or at least the beginning, an incredible beginning of a poem. You know, he his work did go through these different, obviously different characters, but also different evolutions of, you know, sort of trying things out. Like he was kind of a futurist before futurism became inextricably linked with shitty fascism. Right. Uh, he tried out, you know, he was really doing a lot of formal work. So could you talk, I mean, I would argue that the the act of trying to bring the, the English language into Portuguese and trying to reassemble it through the Portuguese language is kind of an act of, you know, an avant-garde move. But could you talk about his sort of different evolutions with isms and, you know, sort of like the formal play that was going on there? 
Yeah. So he, he really, rather than like an author of books, uh, as I said, he, he only published one in Portuguese in his lifetime. He was really a participant in like vainglorious little magazine projects with his buddies from cafes in, in Lisbon. And in the way typical little, little magazines, they'd be like, here is our philosophy. Um, and this is how we're going to revolutionize everything, often like both the Portuguese language um, or Portuguese literature and Portugal politically. And they'd come out and they'd say, you know what? We're swampists. We're so decadent that we're in the swamp. And, you know, uh, uh, Pessoa writes a poem about swamps. I think it's called that. And then they kind of abandon this and that magazine folds. And then they're like, we're intersectionists, to tell you the truth. Not in our sense of intersectionality, but they're like, you know, um, all these subjectivities are actually going to intersect in one person. And the person, as Pessoa says, who is the most incoherent is actually the greatest. He's the, the real Superman is the incoherent guy sitting on his couch thinking about all the different people he could be, but not trying to be any of them. That is the true <laughs> Superman of our of our time. And, uh, you know, then I forget even the other isms that he he floats, neo-paganism. And, you know, he helps uh, Aleister Crowley, the, the, the sort of Satanist, uh, fake his own death. Uh, and I forget the exact circumstances. The lamest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Show a little respect to the rich weirdo, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... He loves trying on different philosophies. And then, I mean, one of the interesting things about these heteronyms is that they can't really be sustained because he isn't really any of these people. So his kind of neo-pagan uh, shepherd, who is a guy... Uh, Wait, is it Ricardo Reis? Uh, that, is, that is actually his... Um, yes, he's a neo-pagan. That's right. He's more stoic. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I guess Alberto Queiro is the shepherd who just sits around thinking things like, to not think of anything is metaphysics enough. What do I think of the world? Who knows what I think about it? If I weren't well, then I'd think about it. So Pessoa is this sort of hyper-intellectual guy. It's like, you know what means that you're really sick in the head is if you sit around thinking a lot, which of course is all that he does. So he creates this <laughs> character who's like, the true way to apprehend the reality and beauty of the world is to be like, rocks is rocks and trees is trees. And that's all we know about them. And that's all we need to know. <laughs> And, you know, you see that in the next breath, in a way, he's like, no, actually, I'm everything and everything at once. And then he kind of schizophrenically goes back to saying, um, no, everything is single in its uh, being and its aloneness. Although it's, it's, it's sort of wrong for me to say in the next breath, he goes back to this because he kind of cycles through these heteronyms. He's kind of like a serial monogamist of himself where he's like, this is, this is what everything's about. And then he'll be like, eh, actually, that guy like Alberto Cairo, who's like the poetic master of some of these other heteronyms, then he dies of tuberculosis. Interestingly, you know, the, the disease his father died of. But so he, he does in creating the biographies of these heteronyms do such things as, as say, well, now this guy who was born a shepherd or, well, born into a family of shepherds and, and worked as one in a different part of Portugal, a rural part of Portugal that I, Fernando Pessoa, am not really familiar with, well, now he's dead of, of uh, tuberculosis. And I mean, you know, you described the way in which some of the heteronyms interact with each other and like, you know, how uh, Alberto Cairo was sort of like the dad of all of these, or was the dad for a while, including of uh, Pessoa, in a weird metaphorical way, sort of the boss of everybody. Do you think that Pessoa anticipated this fact and he and wanted to have his heteronyms collected and connected with himself? 
Or do you think that he would rather have his personas have had their own in- independent posthumous lives rather than this uh, the the necessity of biography to understand them? You know, I think that's a very good question and one that Zenith doesn't answer directly. And uh, so I've now read this huge biography of Zenith, and Zenith also edited and translated this volume called The Selected Prose of Fernando Pessoa, which involves a lot of really wonderful letters. And interestingly, in none of this do I see any discussion on Pessoa's part of his potential posthumous existence as a writer. And I think what happens to him in a way is that time catches up to him. So he's you know, he's a young man. Um, and because he doesn't live very old, he, he gets to be kind of a young man for most of his life. And for many years into his 30s at some point is sort of uh, dreaming of future literary glory, which I think he very much wants to experience while he is alive. But he can't really bring himself to complete anything. And, you know, these magazines fold. And then when he starts writing less poetry and is writing more uh, these wonderful prose fragments that are kind of semi-autobiographical, but also supposedly, you know, they're attributed to Bernardo Suarez, a, a different heteronym, that are ultimately collected in the Book of Tisquia, totally published posthumously. It becomes clear that he ha- he, he's aware that reality is kind of catching up with him and that he's not going to live forever. And in fact... He's not doing the things that he he planned to do. And, you know, there's a way of being an unrealized person where you're still full of hope and possibility. And then a way of being an unrealized person where you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure any of these things are going to happen. And I don't see that he really did anticipate that. He, I don't think he thought, uh, I think if you'd asked him on his deathbed, are you going to be known as like the you know, best Portuguese writer ever, maybe, um, certainly one of the two or three, and somebody who people will be discussing in all kinds of different countries. I don't think he would have had any anticipation that that would be the case. And that, you know, there's a feeling of really gathering failure about him uh, as he moves on in in life. So I I don't think um, he really imagined that he would uh, be gathered between hard covers as uh, all these different poets, or probably even under, you know, his own name. Hmm. Well, what you said about unfulfilled lives cut me deep. (laughs) (laughs) But as as you as you know in the review, that's a that's a problem we all must face, whether we want to or not. But you know, years ago you wrote the novel Indecision. Mm -hmm. It's a comic story about a man in his late twenties who has a case of chronic indecisiveness about nearly every aspect of his life and winds up taking an experimental pill that supposedly cures his condition. Yeah. And if it felt like that book was trying to put a finger on something that feels like a common and historically fairly new condition of moderately well-off people in the so-called global north, the hard to explain but nevertheless real position of having a glut of life choices. And at the same time, no convincing criteria by which to choose between them. And Pessoa seems to have been afflicted with something resembling that indecision. And you describe the triumphant invention of his first heteronym, Alberto Cairo, was sort of an escape from this constant vacillating between artistic and political isms. Um, I'm just wondering if Pessoa's approach feels relevant or connected to whatever compelled you to write about that sense of being stuck. 
I mean, it probably is, although to, to tell you the truth, I'd never made this probably obvious um, <laughs> connection. Um, I mean, it's very insightful of you to pick it out, but it's also like many kind of literary critical discoveries hiding in plain sight. Because I, I had written about Pessoa and read quite a bit of his work prior to writing Indecision. And so Pessoa is sort of a, you know, a writer now who's been with me for much of my adult adult life. I, I do think, yeah, I mean, Pessoa sort of anticipates something of our contemporary condition where if we're lucky, the bad fortune accompanies our, our good luck of feeling like we've got, as you say, a lot of possibilities to choose among and no, no good criteria for making such a choice. I think one of the differences, though, that was pointed to in uh, this really great piece by Nick Burns that was in the New Left Review about Pessoa's politics, which I didn't really have the time to get into in my own work, is that Pessoa, he writes actually quite a bit about politics, and usually it seems insightfully, but but not really coherently, typically, right? He's not a coherent guy. And so he's kind of a royalist at moments, and at other moments a republican, as in, in the you know sort of European sense of feeling there should be a republic rather than a monarchy. And at moments, he sort of seems friendly towards some kind of authoritarianism. But then once Portugal actually has a, a dictator, Salazar, he is very much up in arms against Salazar's um, moves against freedom of expression. And meanwhile, fights some battles on his own, in, in large part uh, about the publication of homoerotic poetry, in which it gives us one clue, we think, maybe to his actual uh, sexuality or sexual orientation. Though he doesn't really do anything between the sheets. So what, one of the things that's interesting about this is that, you know, he does some of this political commentary under different names too. And also he lives in a time, um, well, he lives in a largely illiterate country where uh, there aren't too many people paying attention to this stuff. So he's able to try on different political hats and float rather kind of extreme political positions, which he then revises. And so very different from us is not the sort of multiplicity so much, but the fact that he can, um, he's free to experiment with different ideas and personalities without too much in the way of consequences. So nobody sort of, you know, there, there isn't an online dog pile if he says, you know, <laughs> I, I think maybe we should have a, a monarchy or, you know, authoritarianism doesn't seem too bad to me. And it's, it's clear that he's part of his sort of experimental nature has to do with being in this kind of media context where you can be all kinds of people and maybe a few like other people in cafe society in Lisbon get mad at you. But one doesn't really sort of pay the price uh, for saying something extreme and even outrageous. So there's a sort of freedom he has that we don't really possess to the same degree in our world, where if we say some of the, the indeed sometimes stupid and offensive things that he he does say, uh, he gets to sort of he gets he gets away with that. I mean, you know, he and he does. I mean, it should be said about him. He seems to have been like a nice and kind person, um, but. At the same time, he has some of the racist attitudes that are fairly uh, typical of people of his time. And also, though there's nothing that really suggests he was an anti-Semite, when he was setting up his um, his publishing venture uh, that failed, he was like, I think I'll publish the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Jesus you know? Christ. <laughs> and it's not clear why, you know, this may have been like a, a crass commercial idea, you know, that people like that book or something. And so yeah. I'll try and make... And it doesn't come to pass, but so there are these ugly aspects of his his character, too. That like you know that like other aspects of his character, he kind of tries on, and doesn't really do much about. And of course, it's very good that um, you know we we feel sort of sad that he's sort of unfulfilled romantically, and insofar as he was unfulfilled politically, at moments that's quite good, because his politics at moments are 
you know, at times they're beautiful. And he's like, you know, we really, free speech is tremendously important here in this sort of gathering dictatorship. And at other moments, yeah, he's like, yeah, maybe I could make a buck by publishing this like anti-Semitic tract and forgery. He himself, by the way, I mean, was, uh, you know, he suspected, though it wasn't really clear that he might um, be partly Jewish and of Jewish descent, because uh, as you know, you know, during the Inquisition, a lot of Iberian Jews were forced to convert to Christianity. And he was sort of proud of uh, and distinctive for his so-called sort of Semitic looks. He looked by the lights, uh, his own lights and the lights of some of the people he lived among, he, you know, he looked kind of Jewish. And, and, and I think he, he liked this as a way of sort of standing out. Like he, he dressed like an Englishman and kind of looked as if he were Jewish. Yeah, there's increasing evidence that Cervantes was also one of those, not, not a crypto Jew, but someone, you know, from a family that was forcibly converted. Yeah. Conversos, and, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's a very interesting sort of historical tradition that uh, kind of gets swept under the rug when we're talking about anti-Semitism mm-hmm. or Anytime anyone uses the phrase Judeo-Christian tradition, I'm like, eh, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> and and Basso probably would have objected to that, especially because he, he, I mean, to my knowledge, he doesn't say anything kind of anti-Semitic about uh, Judaism as a religion. And indeed, doesn't say anything anti-Semitic uh, except for trying to publish the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But um, well, he was reading the room. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm defending it, but honestly, it's clear that you know that was probably a factor. But one thing that's very clear is that I mean, one thing that's really consistent about his life is that he's a uh, he's anti-Christian. He he will entertain any idea, but not not Christianity, any philosophy, but not that one. And um, he he really seems to have disliked Christian moralism, Christian metaphysics. He probably identified with his father's refusal of last rites. So, you know, his father, clearly dying of tuberculosis, was offered uh, last rites and, and said, no thanks. Mm. And I, I mean, does that play out in his work at all? That sort of, I mean, aside from this, this, the paganism, let's say, you know, he was also, in his personal life, he was experimenting with occultism and, you know, yes. the Kabbalah and all these, all these other alternative I'm not gonna say alternative beliefs, like it's alternative medicine, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, I mean you know it's it's sort of anachronistic to say so, but there's a new agey aspect of yeah of Paso where he just tries on all you know mixes and matches all these different religious traditions that are not you know those of monotheism. That's in, yeah. I mean, does that is that in his work aside from the paganism? I mean, yes. Um, let's see if I can find. So I'm looking for a poem by Alberto Cairo where he does talk about Christianity in a very distinctive way or about Jesus. Let's see. Well, actually, I can't find the poem I I was looking for, but that's very peso, and I suppose to just fail to do what you tried to do, which ought to have been fairly easy. Um, (laughs) And I do think when it comes to religion, we should maybe read a little bit, and this way we'll cover one more of the heteronyms by reading one of his poems. Uh, a poem by Alberto Cairo, so the sort of, you know, this sort of simple-minded, beatifically realistic, and this is my cat, Olive, <laughs> making her first appearance on a podcast. Um, so this is Alberto Cairo, probably here speaking directly uh, about Peso in a certain way, or f- for him, but also talking about uh, religion. If I die young without having been able to publish a book, without having seeing how my verses look in print, 
I ask those who would protest on my account that they not protest. If so, it will have happened. Then so it should be. Even if my verses are never published, they will have their beauty if they're beautiful. But they cannot be beautiful and remain unpublished because roots may be hidden in the ground, but their flowers flower in the open for all to see. It must be so. Nothing can prevent it. If I die very young, take note. I was never more than a child who played. I was a pagan like the sun and the water with a universal religion that only humans lack. And you see there, even in these few lines that are quite calm, he's, he's incoherent. He's like, it's, it's totally fine if I'm never published because my unpublished poems will be beautiful even if no one sees them. But someone must see them. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, they will, it'll be, you know, they might as well have not existed. And he just sort of calmly says, you know, A is not A. And then he's like, A is A. Yeah, no, but also that that indecision, I think, is also quite familiar to writers who, you know, to lead the art life, you know, is it is it good enough to just do, you know, to make your art for the, the purpose of making your art? Well, yes, but also please look at this. Yeah. <laughs> I made this. Like that that the tension is uh I don't know, I think relatable again. I mean again, I just keep coming back to the fact that Pessoa seems like such a contemporary figure in these weird ways, even though for his, you know, because, exactly because he wasn't going out and doing 19th century, 20th century stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think there's something about his sadness even that sort of contemporary, that sort of chimes with contemporary, uh, I don't know, mores or attitudes in the sense that he, he, he can't tell you how sad he is without making a joke about it, really. And you know, he says that the Book of Disquiet is the saddest book in the world, I think, or maybe the saddest book in Portuguese. But I think he's like, you know, this this is the saddest book in the whole world. But he's sort of joking. And then whenever he says, like, how very sad he is, it's in the, it's in the uh, voice of somebody else. And often there's sort of a joke made about it. And this seems to be, I feel like this is sort of, you know, you one of the odd things about kind of uh, online parasocial life is that people frequently you know, they'll sort of joke about how badly they are doing. It's it's quite difficult uh, to just sort of log in and say, um, no, I'm genuinely really having a hard time. Although people do that as well. So I shouldn't make generalizations. But um, there's a sort of way of being, there's a way of being confessional that's anti-confessional in him that seems to me, and that, that's always comic or usually comic, that seems to me to chime with the way a number of us at least handle kind of expressing ourselves in public these days. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, he, he seems a little irony poisoned maybe, but yeah. also it's also just like, that's kind of the only way to deal sometimes with the horrors of the world is just to be like, I'm going through the worst period of my life. And also here's a joke yes. uh, just to help me kind of deal with it. But, yeah. you know, speaking of being published or being seen, let's say you are at work on a second novel. Would you like to tell us about it? <laughs> oh, not actually, not particularly. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but I, I can say I can I can talk about not wanting to talk about it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> In the sense that I feel like um, it's sort of useful not to talk about work in progress, in part because to talk about it gives you some of the satisfaction of of um, actually producing it, and you should deprive yourself of that satisfaction. I think so that you want, really want to communicate what's in the work, uh, what's in the book, through the book. But um, 
It, it is interesting to me that, uh, you know, the, the, what I'm working on now is not autobiographical. And my first novel, um, I mean, I've written, I've worked on other, well, another novel since, which I didn't end up finishing. It's not published in, in good Pessoan fashion. It's just sort of in a <laughs> trunk, a kind of a digital trunk. The, the book is not autobiographical. And I've been struck writing something that is not autobiographical about how much sort of identification of the the protagonist or the narrator with the with the author we see these days in, in, in what seems like a quite naive way. Um, and, you know, Pessoa was very much fighting against this by wanting to be like, you know, th- this is not me. It's not even me who's writing it, much less is it is it about me and my life. And I guess there's a kind of, um, I'm surprised at the sort of literal mindedness and like uh, literary naivete of much of our kind of current literary discourse in that people seem to be like, yeah, you know, this short sure, is called fiction, but we know it's really, we know it's really essentially a disguised memoir. And of course, autofiction really invites this confusion, but it's a confusion that shouldn't be exported, I think, to the reception of other types of novels. I was actually quite I think the the first review in a kind of normal you know, non trade publication of my novel Indecision was by Michiko Kakutani, and it was a quite positive review. But she um, she very straightforwardly was like in this memoir that calls itself a novel. Oh. And I, I was like, <laughs> I was like Michiko, we we are not friends. Like you don't have any idea, <laughs> you know. And like like one of the major scenes in that. In my first novel is is uh, one where the narrator and main character golfs with his dad in in Connecticut, and I've never I've never swung a golf club <laughs> in my life, and certainly I'm not from Connecticut. I'm from western the western slope of Colorado, so it was just funny that you know people are like, well, this is this is in the voice of a young man, and a young man wrote it, so we're on to you. Well. Female authors have been dealing this for a really long time. So welcome to the club. Oh, you know, speaking of female authors, I feel like we we must read the one thing or from the one thing of Pessoa's that I know of that's written in the voice of a woman. And it's towards the end of his life. And it's quite heartbreaking, really. So, But it was also, it was also quite common for Portuguese writers to write in the voice of male authors to write in the voice of women. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that, but that you know, certainly, yeah. There's a lot of that in the at the time. I mean, and it's not like yeah, this is very unusual. Obviously, Anna Karenina um, and Madame Bovary are uh, you know by men, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. We don't have much of it from Pessoa, and it's interesting what we do have. So this is written, you know, really towards the end of his life, and it's a letter from a hunchback girl to a metal worker that's not sent. And starts, uh, dear Senor Antonio, you won't ever read this letter, and I'll probably never e- even read over what I've written because I'm dying of TB. But I have to write you what I feel, or I'll burst. And then the hunchback girl goes on to say, I'm 19 years old and don't know why on earth I've lived so long. I'm sick, and nobody feels sorry for me unless it's because I'm a hunchback, which is the least of my troubles. For it's my soul that hurts, and not my body, because the hunchback doesn't cause any pain. And then. So he goes on to say, you can't imagine because you're handsome and healthy, you metal worker, what it's like to be born but not exist and to read in the newspapers what people do and that some are ministers who go back and forth to this country and that country. Others are in high society and marry, go to baptisms, get sick and are 
all operated on by the same doctors. Others have houses here, houses there. Others steal and others bring charges and some commit terrible crimes. And there are articles and pictures and advertisements with the names of the people who go abroad to buy the latest fashions. And you can't imagine what all this is like for someone who's like a rag that got left on the recently painted windowsill where it was used to wipe the round marks left by flower pots from when they got watered. Hmm. So, you know, towards the end of his life, Pessoa is like, I'm going to write to, you know, this metal worker in the voice of a young woman who is looking at him kind of admiringly. And so he's like, Maria Jose writes this letter who says, goodbye, Senor Antonio, my days are numbered and I'm only writing this letter to hold it against my chest as if you'd written it to me instead of me to you. I wish you all the happiness I'm able to wish, and I hope you never find out about me so as not to laugh, for I know I can't hope for more. I love you with all my heart and life. There, I said it, and I'm crying. And, you know, it's just, it's remarkable that this creed occur on his deathbed, really, or, you know, near the very end, at any rate, is this letter from another person to an imaginary person that in its body says this will never be sent. And, you know, one certainly hears the self-pity in it, but he's only able to sort of indulge the self-pity as an alternate self. And, you know, one could maybe deplore the self-pity of it, but, you know, I feel like, you know, self-pity is not an inappropriate emotion for a very lonely, dying person. Right. Well, on that note, perhaps (laughs) we should end it. But it was so great to hear you talk about Pessoa's work more. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Violet. Uh, I really enjoyed doing this and everybody should go. And, you know, I wasn't able to um, recommend any book. I mean, certainly the biography is great, but that's probably not where you'd start if you're not too familiar with Pessoa's work. But the Book of Disquiet is truly a masterpiece. And then Zenith uh, put together this wonderful collection that represents all the major heteronyms pretty generously called Fernando Pessoa and Company selected poems. So in addition to thanking you for having me on here, uh, I would recommend that people run out and buy those books if they can. Well, also, I would say there's the, quote, film of disquiet that was made by Portuguese television, which has English subtitles. So you can experience the frisson of these two different languages for free on YouTube. It's quite beautiful to hear the Portuguese spoken aloud and then also to see the the translation at the same time because it is i mean that's what language is right so i just thought it was really beautiful so thank you for mentioning that you've been listening to the harper's podcast produced by violet luca and andrew blevins the music is cut and shoot by febrifuge the new york times has called us america's most interesting magazine Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only 1697.